Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. So today's guest is Frater D, or Frater Demna, is an occultist based in the west of Ireland, traversing the dual paths of ceremonial magic and the Irish magical tradition. He's been uh, trained in the Irish tradition through the Irish Order of Thelema, before going on to work under the auspices of Clan Dord Fian, Family Deer's Cry, and Ord Creve Argid, the Order of the Silver Branch. He has also worked with ceremonial magic through Thelemic orders, including the AA and the Golden Dawn tradition, through the now sadly defunct Ancient and Honorable Order of the Golden Dawn. Since then, he has been working with the Sub Rosa Circle, a geographical experiment in peer-to-peer hermetic Kabbalistic learning, and is involved in reviving Golden Dawn work in Ireland. He has been published in the Golden Dawn Journal, The Light Extended, and several other places. This was uh, something I've been working on making happen for a while. It happened to end up being during a blizzard the morning after we lost power on the property up the mountain the night before. So it, it was, it happened. And as a result, um, the recording is a lot rougher from Zoom than I would have liked. And if it wasn't for the gems in our conversation, I would probably not post it. But there's some gems for those who are brave enough to persevere and be rewarded by Frater D's, very honored Frater D's beautiful Irish accent. Enjoy. Oh, and I did try making an edited version that sounded better, and it, it when I listened back, it didn't. So the edits seemed to reduce clarity, as far as I could tell. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Though I do sort of blame the crazy snow we're having. Peace, light and extension. Here is Frater D.
Um, and we're recording now. Yay. Oh, my God. I can't believe how heavy the snow is outside. I do not have clothes for this weather, my friend. <laughs> I need to go to uh, get into Vancouver and buy some clothes. <laughs> I'm freezing. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So back where were we? How far outside of the city are you? Like five hours in the mountains north. Ouch. Yeah. It's and that's like a I think it's like a twelve hour bus journey through multiple cities that begins by going the opposite direction for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, this is full on stuff up. It's Abermelon style up here, brother. So where were we? Hmm? Where were we? Yeah, I know. I it, it, Both times we've had to do this, it sort of thrown off the flow, hasn't it? That's uh, unfortunate. It's it's tricky talking about magical things, but when you feel like you're sort of inside the Alembic with someone, uh, it's amazing what kind of things can come out and uh, insights and commonalities get shared. I really do feel that we're in a transformational time in the world for people who are drawn to our form of spirituality. Oh, certainly. Yes, yes. It's uh, like there has never been a better time to be an occultist, I suppose. But in a way, it's also more difficult. There's so much information out there and so many things that you can know about and so many things to be distracted about, not even to mention evils like Netflix and the Internet. uh, (laughs) You know, it's almost harder in a way. Uh, I guess. To me, I think it makes uh, things like orders more relevant and magical schools and mystery schools and and our role as teachers more important than ever because that was one of the things that I even I found I was overwhelmed with the plethora of information in the early 90s I didn't know how to approach it or where to begin Don Craig's Modern Magic was was a breakthrough book because it really tried to show someone a systematic path for sort of empirical training as a magician but of course there's lots of holes and he rushes many things and doesn't emphasize that certain things really need to be memorized or practiced as much as they should be um and so today what we can offer in in temples and orders and mystery schools is is helping people cut through that noise more than ever i mean when you have more noise you need you need tools to 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 mute it more than ever and to, to cut through all the, all the BS and get down to the actual practice and techniques. Cause when you, when you break it down to its core, what we do is not all that vast. It's not that hard to get your head around, but learning it in a way that makes you competent to do it. Well, that is what I feel is at risk is, is what's up for grabs. Yeah, sir. In our time, it's also because we are so bombarded, you have this, uh, what Rudolf Steiner speaks about as a crossing the threshold, this awareness of the spiritual world, but people are being pushed over that threshold um, in a way that isn't conscious and willful. So there is an increase in mental illness, an increase in nervousness, in anxiety, to really be self-sufficient and willful 
people and yeah, to, to stand within one's own power. That is one of the, the great tasks of our time. I think there is something in the mystery schools or within mystery traditions that can really address that to some degree. Yeah. But it's really working uh, against the predominant social paradigm of our time. So it is something that's also wrecked with challenge. Yeah. But it's worth it, right? It's worth it for those listening. It is. And it's a question of uh, consciousness and will versus sort of, yeah, I suppose subliminal messaging. You have to remember that, uh, what's his name, Freud's nephew, uh, Burbant, was it? That invented basically modern advertising the use of subliminal messaging and color and so on in the advertising industry. Um, and you counter that what was also happening at around the same time, turn of 20th century with uh, the Golden Dawn and its work with color, same with anthroposophy and its work with color. Um, and uh, yeah, how do you step across that threshold? Do you do it sort of consciously and in a condition consequent way or are you being manipulated by forces that want you to um to to act on your subconscious or upon your will forces but in a way that you no longer have control over and i think this, this question of willfulness is a really earning question of our time yeah i i fully agree um, if there's a time for us to uh, learn how to alchemize the dross of who we are and cut through to unveil our true selves and let those voices speak, now is now is the moment in in our age to speak something things that are true, truth to madness, truth to stupid, truth to power, truth to ignorance, all of those things. Uh, it's a good time for magic, I think, which is a weird thing to say in this post-religious age of science and uh, consumerism. Well, there's what is factual and what is true. The world as it exists is factual, but what is true is the human being's creative potential and power. And I think that there is... You know, they're not uh, factual, but there is probably nothing more true than these archetypal stories. And there's an important differentiation to be made there between, um, you know, spiritual truth and what is factual. What is factual doesn't actually give you anything other than information. What is true gives you something as a human being to work with. Human beings are creatures of narrative. We are stories. We are creative beings. And, uh, yeah, we really need to differentiate between those two things because we can either be victims in circumstances and go, well, that's just a fact of the world and it is the way it is, or we can strive towards what is true. paradigms creating... and uplifting stories can live. 
Yeah, sorry again for the connection. Uh, I hopefully the recording. I found that with Zoom, the recording is often better than the live audio. So hopefully, it, though my last podcast, it didn't save the recordings at all. Uh, for two hours of talking, it it didn't save it, which really choked me. Given um, I think I'm spending like a hundred dollars a month on Zoom, but um, the recording should be better than our live. And and you said so some we might things. be doing this in another cup. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> well, me and me and Eric are Arnamancy who's a great guy, had a great conversation. And then it was just, it, it saved only seven minutes of it. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, you know, and so that's life, though. What can you do? Can I ask you, what would you say is your favorite initiation um, of the from Neophyte to Portal? What would you say is your favorite one? Neophyte, because the seed holds everything else. It has everything in it. It has, um, yeah, it, 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 it's the one that really plants the seed. And yes, it grows after that. But it is this first life that really, yeah, thing, isn't it? Oh, damn. I'm sorry. I was getting the worst possible reception on you there, brother. Uh, I missed what you said. The reception was really horrible. You mind just repeating that for me, brother? I'd say definitely the neophyte role. Okay. Yeah. The neophyte role because it has everything in it. It is really the seed in the earth. It is planted. It is, uh, you know, the tree grows from the seed. And yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. I think it was William Ernest Butler that said, uh, initiation means to begin, and that's all that it means. We are in a constant state of beginning. Uh, I think the neophyte ritual really had... And no, continue. No, I, I think that's about the extent of it. I think uh, everything that follows in the entire outer is there and see form and the neophyte Yeah, it's a very powerful formula. Do you have a favorite uh, ritual? A favorite ritual? Favorite ritual? At the moment, I do the lesser ritual pentagram daily, obviously. Um, that's just my, you know, the. I lost you there. Invoking in the encounters, vanishing at night to just let me sleep. Um, oh, okay. A lot of people. People don't realize, actually, describe. The vanishing or the ritual, the pentagram, gives the invoking form, and then as a script, it gives the vanishing form, and then gives this suggestion of doing the invoking in the morning and the vanishing in the evening. What to be said for leading with the invoking form and using the vanishing form in the evening, in terms of history, but also in terms of the purpose of the invoking form that actually. It's your day-to-day material, but, you know, it's almost like in the AA, this, um, like, 
out of the uh, master template destiny that uh, yeah so there's something to be said for really invoking and walking through the world in a lit up energized way and then be able to shut that down in the same way yeah no I, I definitely know what you mean um, unfortunately our connection's gotten worse than ever and, and I'll hear silence and then I'll hear all your words said really fast in my ear. Hopefully the recording's better for people. I mean, either way, it's been a treat to get to talk to you. Um, I, on the, on your point though, on the, the banishing and invoking, I think that's, that's, do you think though that it's more important to do, uh, an LBR, your, you know, pentagram rituals in a day than, than say the middle pillar exercise? No, but my day-to-days are really that lighting up and turning down. But then I do quite a bit of devotional work at the moment. So plant the altars and, uh, you yeah, know, things in that direction. I will also work with the plant days, for example. And um, yeah, I've been working with material from the Arbol also of late. Um, I think... I suppose I, I've just become a little bit more, I don't know, things have turned down for me for a little while. I don't do everything every day. Uh, the middle pillar has not really been something that has been a huge part of what I do, to be honest. You know, it's a full in a lot of... Uh, ...ERS influence, but... Um, like I do it every now and then, but it's not central to what I do, to be honest. Yeah, you know, so, uh, the, you're, but you're not one of the uh, those adepts that have swapped uh, the the LBRP for doing the SIRH in the morning and the SBRP at night, have you? I know some adepts are doing it that way now, or have always done it that way, like moved, done, gone from the lesser to the supreme. Hmm? About your day-to-day, like things have different contexts. And in your day-to-day, you're not going to get. Yeah, that's 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 sort of what I've I've always thought. Though uh, I've heard the arguments for why adepts should switch to the Supremes, but yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Uh, I haven't experimented with doing Supremes, invoking and vanishing every morning and night. I think that would it feels like it might be overkill. I sort of feel like uh, the extra protection and extra light needed. For people like us is covered by the Rose Cross ritual and analysis of the keyword. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm sure I'll experiment with doing a Supreme every morning and, and evening at some point and, and note, note the benefits or differences. It's a, it's a lot because I, I feel like I don't like to do Enochian without tablets. How do you feel about the idea of doing any Enochian work without tablets present? Well, like tablets, it's a very golden dawn thing, and of course, a golden dawn tradition. But like you grand table and you have quadrants, but you have uh, like air, water, fire tablets around a room. You have often the Nokian workings like the Heptarchy, and so that really have nothing to do with the tablets. I think it's relative, but um. Like one of the things that I created because I like proper template, I like you know, table practice and 
and signs of creation and so on. One of the things that I created that's actually up on GameCrafter is a Nokian magic temple, I think called it. So if your games board is out to give you a deal of practice and the ensigns of creation and the watchtowers and the back of the watchtower are uh, tarot aces so you can turn around when you're not using them. And uh, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for doing proper temple. for a Nokia link. Yeah, you're going to have to send me a link to that. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, um, well, we... Yeah, I, I think if one's clever, same as with a Golden Temple, if one's clever, one can do... <laughs> these things. The, the advice from the Irish adept is uh, be clever. Can we reduce it to that? <laughs> Be clever. Be clever. I like that. <laughs> and um, a bit tricky and what it don't work hard, work smart. I don't know if that's true. I'm a I'm a more of a hard work uh, fan myself, but maybe it's true. Maybe working smart is is uh, you know better. I don't well, know. Yeah, sometimes hard work is required. Sometimes smart work is required. I think people can look at some tasks and go, oh, it's too hard. But if you put some time into thinking, how can I solve this, you would realize it's not universally true that working smarter rather than working harder is uh, of benefit. Um, yeah, I think there is definitely something to be said for uh, just Stepping back from something, looking for it, at it for a while, doing a bit of research, playing any and sink into your drinks and see what comes up. Yeah, no, very interesting. So make some hmm. of the solutions come up when you get back. Yeah, you know, brother, I would I, if if I wasn't sitting in a blizzard up a mountain, I would draw this conversation out as long as I possibly could because I'm enjoying talking to you so much. Given the uh, rapid degradation of the of the reception, I think we should probably draw to a close. Yes, probably. So the wind is also starting to blow here. So yeah, the wind also knock out my. <laughs> <laughs> so we go. We got Canadian mountain internet with Irish Irish gale winds and and buckets of rain internet. Tagaman, the will. Yeah, I didn't even hear your response there. So I guess we we should we need to wrap this up, brother. But this has been a wonderful treat. And next time, let's dive into discussing maybe some of the uh, ins and outs of uh, advanced and inner order ritual work. I would love to, since we have some very similar perspectives and experiences, that would be really fun to get into some more nitty gritty details of that sort of stuff. Either that or do some of the clicky Irish stuff. Oh, I'm always up for talking about the Irish stuff, brother. Yeah, you know, um, I'd love to. I'll, I'd love to share with you some of the details of the developments of the first of Yeats's initiations. It's it's going quite well, but it's an alchemical process of transformation in itself. Just 
working those initiations with all the other information available in, in a way that I believe he would have done. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it everything because, you know, we have relatively the same training and uh, I'm, I'm trying to do it the way I think Yates would have done it with the added resources that we have available today. Like we have so much more resources on everything from Irish OM to just the history of the gods and the mythology that scholarship has developed since Ireland became a republic in, in Yeats's own lifetime. I mean, in many ways, his Irish mysteries were designed to create a, a physical change in the reality of the world. And in many ways, they did. I mean, we saw the Celtic tiger, which Yeats probably would have, if Yeats had been alive for the Celtic tiger, right, the economic boom in the 90s that went on till what, 2008? 2009, I think Yates would have been like, wow, it worked. Just the idea of what I, just his idea of the Celtic twilight and the, the green work worked. He, he, it was a ritual he was doing from the beginning. And certainly the revolutionary and nationalistic side of reviving Irish culture and making it probably the most popular culture in the world, arguably. I mean, from Enya onward. I mean, uh, Irish music, Celtic music in the 90s and the economic boom, it, it was overwhelming. It's all anyone talked about, it seemed. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, we can get into the Irish stuff more next time. Yes. I yeah, want to hear... Next time. Next time. to run on to Maxine also. Yeah, very good. Good meal, Maha. Good talking to you, brother. Ta, yeah, ta. Um, uh, We'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a slan lots. Yeah. Iowa, Iowa, Mahara, Togsos, Togoboge. Iowa. All right. We'll talk soon, brother. <laughs> Light and extension. Light and extension. Bye.
All right, let's see if that worked. We're back with Fratter D, and hopefully uh, there won't be a little, there'll be less interference hopefully this time. It's uh, tricky up here with satellite Wi-Fi in the mountains covered in tremendous snow today, and the uh, power went out across the little property last night, and that caused all kinds of issues for getting up early. And here we have Fratter D back with us. All right, can you hear me, Fratter D? Can you hear what I'm saying? And we are back. Oh, and you sound very clear. Yeah, it's cleared up quite a bit. Ooh, I like that. That's sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Not the clarity, your That's accent. Too far away from me, I'm sorry. Everyone wants to hear your accent nice and clear, brother. You're getting all the uh, American pagans all a flutter. I, I must say, though, I don't sound terribly Irish. Like, I have no TH sound, but uh, I, I don't have a very colloquial accent. I, I mm. can probably imitate one or put on a Belfastian or something, but... Uh, oh, show me your Belfast. Yeah. Show me your Belfast. Your Belfast? Well, you know, i put everything with an open flex at the end. Everything's a question. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that brings me back. Yeah. Whereas in Cork, you have a more musical where the 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 upswing is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, my girlfriend there was from Oma, but one of her parents was British, so so her accent was a little fucked up with the British influence from a young age. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I, uh, I do love the variety of. There's such a variety of of uh, Irish accents, and um, of course, there's the main ones. But I think people don't realize the the variety even in in the Irish language in 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 the Gaelga. It's quite different from like say Cork to to Ulster, right? Oh yeah, there's huge variation, but. Uh... Yeah, Guidor or uh, Gaelic Donegal is significantly different in its pronunciation. Like you have influences from, I suppose, Scottish as well. Like Dove becomes Doove and things like this. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's almost like a different language. If someone goes, oh, I, I learned Irish and, and you go, which Irish? Yeah, which Irish? If you sent them up and you go all, they'd be lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and Donegal and uh, uh, or even Donegal is what 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 I what I first learned, and then when I was living on Inishmore, uh, it was shockingly different. You know, they would it was so much so guttural, and they would say some very different things. Like in in Donegal, you'd be like Shade of Aha, right? Shade of Aha or Kajamar Tatu. Yeah. But down in like in on the on the Aran Islands, they wouldn't even say like. To uh, like you know, they would be like, uh, "Nice to meet you." They would say, "They would say Tommy Sosta Kudum for nice to meet you." Tommy Sosta Kudum. I don't think anyone in Ireland has ever said that outside of Inishmore, have they? Like there is happiness on me. Probably, but the islands, the islands, are weird. Uh, like it's the same on Forty Jesus Christ Church there. Uh, <laughs> Because you and I would be like Taahasorn Bululat or something yeah. like that, right? 
yeah, it's like that. But like you go, like even this testing where someone's from, you like go at them the various iterations of uh, how are you now, kind of the to get a will to kajemar to and see which one of them recognize an answer to figure out where they're from. Yeah, no, you can. You can definitely tell, right? Kehiwil 2 versus like Kajamar Tatu versus Kajamar Tatu versus Kajamar Tatu. Like, you know, you get that really guttural one down south. I can't understand anyone from Cork or, or like Kerry at all. Like if I'm in if I'm in Dingle, I can't understand their Irish. No chance. No fucking way. I uh, but you probably don't understand half English either. The weird, <laughs> random sentence. Well, I, I was gonna. I let you say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm allowed to say it. I come from here. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's it's an affectionate utterance. It's like but yeah. So what do you we mean? Don't uh, get too much into the Irish because otherwise we have a number of very bored listeners. Yeah, well, I don't, there's there's <laughs> always. I talk a lot about language on my podcast, so people are, are used to bearing with me. Um, I think language is really important. I mean, uh, I, was, I was listening to a, a master uh, class with an OTO-trained teacher, and uh, I, I won't name them, of course, but they were referring to things like Elohim Tzavayot as, as some of the barbarous names, and who could ever know how to pronounce something like Tzavayot or Sabaoth? Because it's just some random barbarous name and doesn't mean anything. Sabaoth. And I was like, okay, <laughs> linguistics will help us out there a little bit. I was very surprised to hear an adept of any system in the Western mysteries, you know, not know Sabaoth, you know, Sabaoth, Sabaoth, if you want to do the v Hebrew. Yeah, so we do need to pay attention to the linguistics, I think, in our traditions. Unless, unless we eventually want to just turn oh, Hebrew wonderful. into a into a fully barbarous language, which I don't think uh, would Kabbal- traditional Kabbalists would would appreciate. Yeah, no, I, I think you know you can pick and choose pronunciations of Hebrew, but there needs to be like um, some reference at least to. Uh, contemporary spoken Hebrew also like I absolutely hearing someone saying uh, Tifarat with a hard A in the middle it's like an Aleph is pretty much always a sort of windy sound you know in the contemporary Hebrew it's Tifret there, there's absolutely nothing there yeah my favorite is Tifereth my favorite's Tifereth I love it when people say Tifereth and, and sometimes oh, I say it that yes. way too I'll say it that way. I'll be like, and that's when the light goes right through Typhirith. <laughs> um, but you know, if you say if you say Tiferet, right, like a modern Hebrew person, you're, you're going to lose some people. When I do Kabbalah, what I do, brother, is I always say word each. I say each word with different pronunciations, always in the same lecture, and that way people hear me say Keter, they hear me say Kether. They hear me say all of them because I do want to emphasize to people to not get hung up. We shouldn't be pedants about how we pronounce Hebrew. Just like in Ireland, depending on where you go in this t- tiny little green island, you hear almost a completely different language, yet it's all Asquelga. 
Yeah, I mean, I essentially agree. I think as, uh, you know, people take liberties as well, though, or they're lazy. There's a difference between uh, knowing that there are different ways of pronouncing it and just going, well, it doesn't really matter the living language. Well said. Very well said. I think you, I think you, uh, you so that's I don't mind, point. like, you know, taking tongue-in-cheek liberties as long as it's, um, yeah, so as it's not really just ignorant. Yeah. And sort of, I suppose... If There's also that slightly colonial, appropriative aspect as well, where you're just going, I can do whatever I want with this language, and, uh, you know, it's fine, and no, it doesn't matter that it's a spoken language or that, uh, you know, letters have specific sound values. Mm. It, it matters, and you can sort of look at that a little bit tongue-in-cheek but and have variations, but they should be based on something at least. Yeah, yeah, I think that's also a really good point um, about us uh, fostering a respect for the things we're studying. Yeah. So, yeah, where was I before the haunted language? Oh, yeah. So we're looking at STEM and AO and the D were like more like uh, kissing cousins. Uh, and spatting siblings they are very mm-hmm. compatible. So when the ancient honourable or the Golden Dawn Island started this, going to the United Kingdom and various places where there were collections of papers, like in the Mason's Hall, also in Dublin, there's a large cache from Yeats, George Paul Fox, and um, I think most of Gaunt's papers there also. And uh, yeah, really lucky's and comparing them and comparing versions because some people, of course, were very careful copyists. Some people were not. And uh, you sort of get a little more nuance to how the Golden Dawn tradition was practiced. And um, yeah. So in a way, it was a slightly academic exercise, but it had to hurt you. Yeah, the uh, <clears throat> I actually can't remember the question I wanted to ask you. Uh, pardon for that. Yeah, and sorry again about all the technical issues. Wow, it's really snowing outside. You 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 wouldn't believe it. It's crazy up here. Yeah. Huh. <clears throat> it's sort of amazing we have electricity now that I think about it. You get snow like rain. Hmm. Yeah, you get snow and I get rain, but at least I usually get electricity. Oh, yeah, Ireland has got a nice sort of humid, warm rain at times, though. It's just a, a nice climate. It's a good climate for me, Ireland. Um, the extreme cold and extreme hot, my uh, my poor autoimmune system doesn't handle well. But, you know, God willing, we'll survive. God willing, yes. So anyway, that was all developing alongside while I was in the OTF and then later the Aeronauk or the Irish Order of Salima, which began to look at native sources. Um, so looked at things like the settling in Veneratara, which details uh, like attributes of the provinces, 
So, for example, knowledge in the West, battle in the North, prosperity in the East, music or harmony in the South, and kingship in the centre. Oh. And looking, for example, at the matters and the tools and the ontological system of the two of the Dan and folding all that into an initiative system. Yeah. That's very cool to me. Given all the work I've been doing on, on Yeats's uh, Celtic Mysteries work and order and initiations, I'm, I'm uh, diving back into a lot of the stuff. Well, I never really, really stopped looking at the Irish mysteries. But, yeah, it's been, you know, I've been working on the Yeats initiations, right, for the Order of Celtic Mysteries. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so that's, that's it's a fascinating thing to uh, to put together ceremonies given... I have a pretty good idea of where he was going with the outlines that he and Mathers wrote. Um, and it's, uh, I think he would have really wished he had had access to all the sources of Celtic myth as well as magical lore that we have today. I think he would have had an easier time finishing it. Well, there, there are problematic things about Yeats in some ways because um, like he had a very definite vision of uh, his idealized Ireland and like if you look at his plays and stuff he yeah he also wrote initiatory dramas in that context um, but I suppose he also sort of makes up his own personal mythology uh, that fit with his beliefs a little bit uh, oh, for sure. through the plays in terms of like um, so well, you've heard, you've a, heard the, so, you've, you know, going back and looking at, have you, have you heard the quote? You go that, back and look at the Celtic studies. Sorry, we, I keep go talking on, over me. you. I keep talking over you. Sorry about the, that. It's the delay. I, I'm blaming the delay. <clears throat> so, Go sorry. To me already. Okay, all right. Oh, it's just the one. You know, you know. There was once a uh, Yeats once invented a country called Ireland. Some oh, like, yeah. you heard that. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that yeah, the, the audio glitch is back. That, uh... Oh well. Oh well. Third. But there is a lot of material that he didn't touch that was being translated around that time, like the settling of the Manor Tara and various manuscript sources that are cosmological. And there are people in Ireland that work for a while, like I'm sure you know uh, John Patton, who wrote Poets' Ohm. Sorry, he wrote what? Poets' Ohm. Yes, yes, yes. I'm quite deep in Ohm at the set, at the moment. Well, John Paul Patton in that book sort of deals with Ohm as a cosmological system, so how it relates to directions and how it relates to like, the very ceremonial magic texts, because he also has, I suppose, background in our traditions and... Um, yeah, it's a very interesting text when you start to look at cosmology and things like that. 
So there have been people on the island waiting like that for a while, particularly for Twill Rock, and more recently with some other bodies like uh, Cree Variga, the Ordered Silver Branch, which is, um, I suppose, uh, inspired by AA system, but um, yeah, really with an Irish context, so a student master kind of dynamic. Mm. Yeah, maybe we could, that's something I'd love to talk to you about. Um, what's your thoughts, given you have experience with uh, the Thelemic world as well as the Golden Dawn world, and what's your thoughts on the sort of the order as a magical college versus the magical college taught via master apprentice models? It's a complicated question, and I think it comes down quite a bit to temperament also. Human beings are sub-creatures, so for a lot of people, the master apprentice model is quite difficult because there's something to be said for being seen to advance and being seen to achieve some things, and people have social needs within their interests also, I suppose. There are really two major branches of Lima. You have these social orders that, uh, you know, advance anybody to a certain stage as long as they pay dues. And then you have like um, things like AA and so that are really very individual, private, concentrated studies. There isn't really an equivalent in the Golden Dawn world, not really, unless you like a reputable order, disreputable order. We're not going into this. Oh, I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't catch exactly what you said. You want to say that again? I, I said there isn't really an equivalent to like a social order and a magical order like you have in Lima. So you have, oh, yeah, deals and things like this that will advance anybody that pays their dues and yes. sort of a social peer to peer learning model. But it's not necessarily systematic. Yeah. And then you have um, like things like the AA, which at least ideally are very quiet and about the individual work, and it's much more systematic and um, in theory, as it produces good initiates, whereas the Golden Dawn doesn't have this social aspect. There are social aspects to the Golden Dawn in that there's good temple work. It's a systematic system, and you only advance by passing tests, by doing the work. Yeah. So it's a little bit chalk and cheese. <clears throat> yeah. Now, in the, in the first issue uh, of the extended the Golden Dawn journal, I wrote an article called uh, Golden Dawn and Lima, a spatting siblings or kids' cousins. <laughs> I like that. And it looks at some of the parallels, some objections that the Golden Dawn people have to Lima, some of the arrogance that self-declared Talamites have towards the Golden Dawn, you know, they read the Equinox or they think they have the equivalent of the Golden Dawn system and it's just, yeah, ignorant, like, as I say with uh, Lima in particular, uh, you know, Talima has a lot of good substance. Aldous Crowley had some good material, if only there were Talamites. Yeah. 
you know, um, it's interesting. Some of the, uh, the, uh, I guess, prejudices or pre understandings, uh, as you might call them, that there are towards both systems. I know like, uh, I was, when I was talking to Chris Bennett just the other week, uh, about his, uh, Frater Bacchus was coming up here and we were going to do some work. Um, he's, uh, he's a new, new person in the AA and his teachers back East in Canada. What we were talking with, I was talking with Chris and, and, um, I was telling him a bit about my experiences with the, you know, the Oasis in Belfast and how I ended up really doing quite a bit of instruction there just from the golden bond perspective on basic rituals and, and practices because they didn't have an equivalent there in there for their OTO members. And, um, and even the Sean and some of the other AA guys, as they divulged to me, really didn't have the same framework for doing a lot of the, the, this GD style ritual work, which Crowley is still bringing, is still brought into the AA. It's still taught there, but maybe differently. And I didn't understand that. I wasn't aware of how, so it was quite a fun interaction and, and uh, that we had for that, for that time. But what Chris was saying to me was his, his, his understanding for as an outsider, because Chris Bennett's not a member of anything except uh, the, uh, perhaps the uh, secret cult of the Hashishin that worship the, the mysteries of the cannabis plant and other <laughs> plant spirits. Um, but he said, well, the AA, he said, was a group of people who really know their material and are serious about the ritual work and know it inside and out, whereas the Golden Dawn is more just something that people, you know, like to join that doesn't really take things seriously or study the material very well. That was his perspective. I was like, I was like shocked because, well, you know why I was shocked. My perspective has always probably erred on the opposite understanding. Um, and that's interesting. That's interesting to me. And I, I so, yeah. I mean, I'd hope we all would take it all I seriously. I think it's a of the flaws of human beings. Yeah, how's that? Yeah, yeah. But it's a question of flaws of human beings. In the AA, in the AA you get a bulk of material, and yes, you have an advisor or a teacher, but does that mean that teacher is necessarily good or that their teacher is necessarily good? And the same is true of Golden Dawn groups. There are a lot of Golden Dawn groups that just work from, you know, the regard materials. And while there's nothing wrong with that, I think it takes a particularly brilliant mind to really learn in that way. And you have sort of very often blind leading the point also in a Golden Dawn setting. So it depends on the template, it depends on the instructor, it depends on human beings. And human beings are flawed. Yeah. So you either have a brilliant outcome or not so brilliant outcome, depending on what human beings are dealing with. It really, it really does come down to your teachers. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because that sort of takes it back into the realm of, of lineage discussion, not insofar necessarily as passing on the true and most profound etheric link possible, but just in terms of practical education, right? Because, if you're studying with one person, they might give you what the best they know, but what they know might not be so great. And if you're in a group, uh, you might have that ameliorated by the variety and multiplicity of voices, right? In a group, you're more likely to have some people who really know their stuff and other people who are just sort of there. 
But if you're just with one person, you're stuck with that one person and you might not even see their weaknesses because there's no comparing and contrasting them to other initiates. Yeah, but the same can be true in a temple setting or in a lodge setting where uh, whoever found it set a basic standard and that just gets passed on then. So there's advantages to also wider networking and knowing what else is out there. And, you know, some people start in one order and end up moving to another just for functional reasons because uh, they find a better fit or they find... Uh, yeah, they weren't doing what they thought they were doing in their original group, or there's a lot of variation there, not just in terms of individual teacher, but the individual group itself, and even its emphasis. Some groups are ritual groups, some groups are teaching groups, some groups are, yeah, huge variation, I suppose. Some are, yeah, some, some just are social clubs, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a core thing, a, cr a crucial thing is... I was is, avoiding the last one, yes. Yeah, I, I know you were. I know you were. Um, I think a crucial thing is whether or not the group is putting on the full initiations, right? That really is a, a central thing, uh, teachings aside. I mean, are you... I've recently found out that amidst the... Uh, I don't want to get into the debate about astral initiation at all. <laughs> let's, let's... That, 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 that dog's been... Uh, I don't know what the saying is, but yeah, we've, that's been covered. But the, the, the corollary issue I've noticed is some people are, are saying you, astral initiation is pointless and you need to go through it physically, which I agree with. But then I've heard them say um, that going through physically can mean just having like half, half as many people as you need for officers in the room. You don't, and you might not have regalia or temple attire or temple setup. You might not have all the props, and that's okay because you, you're going, you're still going through it physically. And to me, to me, it seems that having like say three, the three, say you have the three H officers, but you don't have the lesser officers for a, a neophyte initiation. I'm not sure that that's better to have three people in a room without regalia, without tools, without scepters and and pillars or tablets, I'm not sure if that's better and going through it like that than going through it, say, astrally, for example, and waiting until you have a full temple set up to go through it physically. I feel weird about the idea that, that a physical initiation trumps an astral one when that physical one doesn't have the full cast of officers in a full temple with a full setting and all the tools. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I mean, this is very much a an ongoing question, I suppose. Does one gather, for example, a study group first until you have your mandatory, what is it, seven officers? Or does one um, really work down with a pared down uh, set of officers and uh, initiate and just rotate people around so they fill in for your, yeah, the Ducas and Solisis? And, um, I don't know the answer to that. I prefer and have always been in a uh, temple that had a full set of all, so I can't really draw a comparison. Okay, so yeah, neither of us have had that experience. Like, we're both sort of... I, we're either spoiled or we're, we're taking this stuff as seriously as it should be taken. And uh, yeah, I've, I've only had, like you, a 
full temple experiences with full sets of officers. And like we, we, we wouldn't even allow a temple to initiate and call itself a temple unless there was two adepts. And that was because the idea that we, if you allowed one adept to start a temple and then and gather, you know, full start full initiations, it was just too tempting for it to become a, a, a guru situation and and have their ego run run amok. Plus, there's the the you know the idea of where two or more or are present, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You're well, like, um... yep. We agree on that. Okay. <laughs> Next. <laughs> It is great when people agree. Yeah, and, and this question of not having tools and stuff, that this question of not having the tools, of people argue, oh, no, it's too complicated and too expensive. So I did an experiment, and it's actually being published in the next um, Light Extended, the Golden Dawn Journal, which should be out hopefully next Oh, um, wonderful. Did you say next week or next week month? Christmas rush. Everybody okay. still talking. All right. I love it. A pot product Next pitch. month. Would, would be the next month, I believe. Wunderbar. Um, but in that, I uh, have a, an article called The MacGyver. Uh, the MacGyver? Try to create to spec the Gundon tools. MacGyver, yes. <laughs> you know, this MacGyver program that was in the 80s where you get like an elastic band and yeah. uh, a paper clip and build like, you know, a, a flamethrower or something. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. about being resourceful. Um, and so all these things like um, like operators from Ikea for banner stands and for pillars and put covers over them, obviously, and... Uh, yeah, like making a double cube filter out of like square tables of a certain size so that you get a double cube altar and so I went through the experiment and it cost me I think it was about four hundred euro to build a golden dawn temple with scepters, with swords, with um yeah, pretty much everything with capes for uh, uh three H officers with um yeah wow D did trip chops i did so and you know, I, I left a contingency in there so it might take 500 because i'm quite lucky on some things or uh -huh. a couple of things beforehand but uh, but basically less than a thousand bucks to put together a full temple i don't know the argument that's too sorry so basically it only cost you less than a thousand bucks to build a whole temple Oh yeah, right. So there's no real excuse. It sounds like it come. It's coming down to laziness uh, for people that think they can just like, you know, fly fly into a city, go to someone's house with one other initiate or adept, and just initiate them in their living room with astral tools or imaginary tools and an imaginary temple. Yes. I just find that lazy because to be honest, like one of the other things was I buy no special tools. So I managed to make gold on scepters to spec using uh, a drill, a saw, um, broom handles, you know, these round wooden balls with a hole going through them for the <laughs> bottom. And then I used polymer clay for the tops and for the vents and just painted them in a paint, varnished them. 
And, you know, each of them was working out maybe 30, 40 euro piece. Are you going to post pictures of all these? Uh, no, because if you use these, I have a, how do you say, uh, I guess, uh, two against posting, uh, like, cool pictures. But I might make a second set just to um, yeah. uh, perfect my process and then... <laughs> sort of past or probably the less wonderful ones that I did the first time around and uh, but yeah so it, it's this very question of yeah where there's a builder the way and if people are a little bit more resourceful or spent a little more time thinking and researching they actually do these things yeah and just get on with it you know it's, it's... yeah no I, I think uh that's a good lesson for, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the preparation of our tools is a huge part of ritual work. It's a huge part of invocation of, of, of energies and initiation of forces. I mean, to not, to not see that as part of the magical process is, I think, a fundamental error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's an initiatory aspect to finding that resourcefulness and putting in a slog and all that. Yeah. What's your, um, what's your thoughts on uh, the fact that, do you think Mathers, Westcott, and Woodman ever went through the initiations after they created them and started performing them? Do you think they they ever said? Do you think Do you think Mathers ever gave the scepter to Moina and said, "Hey, I'm going to go through neophyte this time. You you sit on the throne while I do the not not as a candidate." It would have been ideal, but I somehow doubt it because what's, it hit what's, the ground very quickly. Okay, so because they didn't have time, he would. They were busy developing. You know, when the, after the outer order initiations were developed, they were busy developing the inner order ones and then the inner order curriculum. And then Mathers had to develop the whole Enochian system based on an incomplete collection of these manuscripts, right? So he was very busy, is what you're saying. Yes, but also look at it this way. I mean, he might have eventually gone through them, but certainly not in the early days, I think. Um, this way, like when when Golden Dawn started, they were in a basically a Mystic Temple practicing. They were thinking a royal art. Royal arch. Now, yeah, royal arch. And uh, in the royal arch, if you look at the scepters, you also have an equivalent scepter for the hierophant and the headstone. Mm-hmm. So there are strong royal arch influences, and it's a question whether they, in the early days, like used royal arch scepters, whether they did pull Tower o, for example, to begin with, because they speak about minimum regalia, for example, being the, the grade sash. So it's a question over how long that unfolded or happened. So I think there was probably a certain amount of bootstrapping in the early days as well, because they didn't have a custom golden temple to begin with. They were using Masonic halls 
to practice initially. And quite possibly Masonic tools and Masonic banners and also from the Royal Arch and so on and so forth. Hmm. I didn't realize they were actually just using those tools, just taking them from the Masonic Hall and, and bringing them into their Golden Dawn Temple. It does make sense, though, that they would double duty those tools rather than... I don't than... know that. You're not sure? We don't know that 100% for sure, but I think there's a good possibility, given they were in a large hall, given that they were all Masons, some standing, given that yeah, the specific tools that they have are at very least modeled on the Royal Arch tools. Um, mm. There's a good possibility of that. Yeah. At least very initially until they built more custom set of tools. They definitely did uh, some of the early initiations at Horniman's uh, house where Mathers was put up, right? I mean, because they probably couldn't have initiated the women at the Masonic Halls, right? What, do you know about that? I really know, actually. I mean, it's a good question. Of course, all the members are also members of the... Uh, SRIA and there's a certain relationship between Golden Dawn and SRIA. But if you go to SRIA in London, it's sort of like a joint entrance to Masonic. Also, like it wouldn't be difficult for them to over totally uh, going to just like they probably had access, fairly unrestrained access. So they probably just knocked the women like. Yeah, that's interesting. What's your thoughts? That's not a statement. What's your thoughts in general on uh, initiates versus non-initiates, people practicing the Golden Dawn system of magic without the option of initiation versus uh, what do you, what does initiation bring and what can you get out of it, the system without initiation? Well, there are two sides to initiation as I see it, or maybe more. First is it's sort of Masonic pieces as dramaturgy. So you have the performance of ritual in such a way as to create a dramatic impression upon a person. You know, the incense, the lighting, the temple decor, these funny outfits that we wear that they make an impression upon a person. But of course, the Golden Dawn isn't just Masonic. It has um, some Masonic roots, and there's an argument made, particularly for some of the esoteric Masonries of Central Europe, as an influence. Uh, we know, for example, the West basically can, uh, collected pretty much every accolade he could in terms of esoteric uh, European Masonry. Um, and yeah, that sort of. But there's that dramaturgical element. We must remember the Golden Dawn Star, there was no second order for a couple of years. So originally, the ritual was purely Masonic. Before the Z documents existed and this overlay that the Hierophant was doing, uh, they were purely dramaturgical. The Z documents bring in another element, which is God forms and I suppose this channeling light within the temple as a 
theurgic, um, magical operation as opposed to a dramaturgic, um, sort of funny cats kernel organization. So the Golden Dawn was an evolving thing, but uh, so yes, you can do the funny hat approach, but I think that certain aspects of the second uh, protection of the Z documents and uh, yeah, the, the magic element is, is much more difficult to carry within a self-initiatory or practice context. And I don't agree with Rigby, for example, saying that uh, doing the watchtower ritual loads of times is the equivalent to get order work. I, I think that's just too simplistic. Um, yeah, this that's... rose obviously made a good go with their uh, self-initiation into the Golden Book and a little bit more merit, but it's very difficult to operate because you always need the skills of an adept as a neophyte in order to enact those formulas. Yeah, I've never talked to anyone who felt they successfully self-initiated through the Cicero book. I know I, I tried to self-initiate through Donald Michael Craig's Modern Magic and uh, achieved what I would call a spectacular failure um, that was well chronicled in my magical diary on, on a fateful midsummer Sabbath <laughs> back in 1994 or 5. But um, the self-initiation thing is interesting to me because a lot of people don't have uh, any local temples and want to start the work they they want to get into the work and and uh, i don't know do you think that do you think there's another self initiation book out there to be written that would be better or or more effective or is is the whole process just a fool's errand i think it's a little bit of a stopgap in that you can go through it and it is an alternative but it's not equivalent and what would benefit people who can access a golden temple for whatever reason, very far away, they don't have the space in their life for that, to learn some material and it might make them moving through a uh, temple initiations a lot faster if they had gone through that process previously and would allow them to be members large or members at a distance. Mm. Uh, to an operative temple because it would still give them enough of a basis that they would be able to apply themselves um, to yeah the individual work then in between without being as hand-holding as one would otherwise uh, maybe need outside of the context. But I don't know. I don't want to just look. I think it's a wonderful idea but it's an alternative and not an equivalent. And yeah, it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It means it's not the same. Yeah, that's, de that's definitely my approach uh, with people who come to me. Like this year so far alone, I've said 12, 12 people that have come to me have left me to join essentially Golden Dawn Orders, um, which I think is great because uh, one thing I post on my website is if you if you live near an initiating temple or group, that's where you should go. Like, don't like you know if you're solo or trying to self initiate. I'm happy to give someone direction. I can't initiate them though, but I can help them go through the work and do it well. Because you know if you're going to do these rituals, you may as well do them well, right? Um, 
and with some guidance. But definitely, like, my first priority is always to send people. If you have a local group, by by God, go to that group. Um, but if you can't afford to fly out, you know, for an initi- to be initiated uh, for a couple years, but you're called to the work, I don't know. I think you should do the work. I, 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 got, trem- I got so – the reason I joined a Golden Dawn Temple and got initiated uh, – and I had a good te- you know, temp- temple. Tehuti was founded by uh, Ninavash Shadrach, as he's called these days. He was Frater Ka back then, um, and he was a great, great adept to found a temple and, and gave the people who then trained me very good training. Um, but the reason I joined was because I was doing the rituals on my own, and even though all I had was Don Craig and Rigardi, I was getting so much out of them, especially compared to what I had been getting out of. Scott Cunningham and DJ Conway, like the comparison was night and day for me spiritually. And the results in my life were almost immediate. Like after just a couple weeks of doing the LBRP, my life changed steadily and continuously for the better and never stopped changing for the better as I continued along, you know? And that's why I joined an order because the rituals were working. And there's also value to serve within that context. So like one has gone through that one sees as losing one's personal work, one starts to get back because both people go, well, I'm that, it's over. It's the same as like masonry, through masonry and go, I did my crap, please and dusted but i think there are longer term benefits to i don't know continuing groups or starting new groups or um yeah really looking to transmit tradition in a responsible way as well as asking what can i get out of that and that's something that you definitely don't get in a self-initiatory context you don't get um the service in the same way you don't really serve the spiritual tradition in the same way as you within a temple or a based system absolutely yeah well i mean you don't it's a truth about all knowledge is you really start to learn it when you start teaching it yeah definitely and i think um you know, there, there's also a lot of room for developing new things in the Golden Dawn context. You have uh, magical technologies and methods of working, but you also have, you know, a lot of lot of room for innovation. And I think, you know, if you think you're finished, then you're not doing it right. Yeah, very well said. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I, again, of course, I feel very lucky. I got to, like, I got to go through, I got to be all the officers. Like, and, you know, you do an officer for a six month term. I got to, I got to be all of them. And a lot of people didn't get to do that, uh, especially once you're in five, six and in, in the inner order, you might not get to do like a lower outer officer role because you might be needed for the dais or for Hierophant. But I mean, like, I think I got to do Carrick's after I was in five, six you know, and as well as Hegemon, which I never thought I'd get to do those roles, but I did. And that was a, a real treat that made a, a, you know, yeah, it's, it's a, to be, to, 
to be fill those officer roles and and do everything from the initiation rehearsals to the memorization of all the initiations and performing them time and time again is is uh, is a powerful thing that I think does influence our magic. I think a lot of people do see them as just uh, symbolic Masonic sort of initiations meant to give you badges that you wear to tout your greatness, but there's such, there's so much deeper magic going on. There's so much, you know, astral current that that's passing through those ceremonies and everyone involved. It's, it's transformative. I feel on the deepest, deepest spiritual level and just the human psychology and training that comes with being a part of such spiritual and powerful psychodramas is it transforms you again and again. And I think that's something people should should work towards in their magical lives if if they are serious about it. Is like you said, you can build a temple or all the tools for for less than a thousand bucks if you actually have the the willpower to see it through and the creativity and perseverance. Perseverance is the word, isn't it? Not very much. Uh... Yeah. I look forward to people seeing your article and realizing they can uh, they can just do it. There is that feeling these days that, like, look, if you have a group of people that want to get into this stuff, just just start a hobby temple and start as a study circle, build all the stuff, and and that's probably better than uh, than just uh, everyone going it alone or self initiating. Yeah, and it makes it nicely tangible when you build the tools, a group, or you set up uh, the work. You, you really build momentum by having other people to balance off, and it really allows to get there an awful faster and get going. Mm. Yeah. We were talking about, um, about Tatwas. And uh, I was saying that it was one of uh, Frater Yeshi's uh, old 7-4 adepts who was telling me he thinks that the Tatwa should be introduced at neophytes so that by the time you get to the serious scrying work in, in the inner order, because like from 5-6 on, a huge chunk of your work is scrying work, right? A huge chunk, um, if not the majority maybe. Mm. Um, and he, he thought it was strange that we often save scrying till later on. So like, you know, if, if you don't begin scrying till practicus or philosophist, by the, you, you might not be all that great at it by the time a year later or two years later, by the time you take five, six. So his thought was, yeah, like why, why are people not starting scrying in neophyte? Like, and I, I sort of was inclined to agree with him. Like maybe people should start scrying in neophyte. I, Yates definitely believed that the tatwas should be practiced uh, early on in his Celtic mysteries, he said they should be introduced at the cauldron initiation, which is the second initiation or third, depending on how you count. What's your thoughts again? Tell me, we, we touched on it briefly on messenger the other day. I think I, I am unpopular. I th I'm a creature of tradition. I like keeping the structure. I think there is some to do that. However, I do also think when people have a an enhanced interest in magical activity and so on, you know, you can go do personal, you can experiment with scrying because there's a lot more to scrying than just what's in old dawn tradition. There's a huge amount of resources out there. You know, go build yourself a magic mirror. Go 
start scrying, do some other work in between, like upper order curriculum on its own, which isn't terribly magical in and of itself, unless you're on those orders, which is lots of material from the inner order to the outer order. You know, you you have time and possibility of uh, working on other skills that will be of benefit later, but I wouldn't necessarily add to the formal curriculum. But I might say, you know, this might be something I want to look at because this could be a valuable skill set later. Yeah, I must say I am a, a fan of putting uh, as much material in the outer order as you can sort of manage, but that's uh, that is that's just me. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people actually don't even realize um, that in the traditional order there was really even no middle pillar ritual. There was the LBRP, and it was at different stages done differently, quite differently at, in the early days, I believe. And uh, and the rest, everything was saved until five equals six. A lot of people don't realize it was just a series of meditations. I also remember that in the original Golden One and the AO, you could move through the outer order in because there was a minute period between each of the grades, and it will become slightly longer each time. So you could go a month between Neophyte and Zelda, for example. Um, but you could, if you were an applied student and studied the knowledge lectures and did the tests, you, you could pass to better order in a year and a half, two years in the original system. And it was really within the second order that one spent long periods of time doing a mag magical experimentation and skill acquisition that took a number of years per well, subgrid in the case of the Dawn and the AO. And obviously in some of the SM orders, uh, the subgrids were sort of done with and uh, yeah, there were just these hypergrades on the tree that the original subgrade work was attributed to. But that's where you should be spending really long time, not in the order. Yeah. In my yeah. opinion. Well, for sure, for sure. And physically also. Yeah. Physically? Sorry, I missed that last thing. I missed the last thing you said. Also historically. Historically, it was how it worked until, like, DSM. But it was also, like, a basic test of perseverance. People either did the work or didn't do it. If they didn't, they did advance. You know, if somebody takes years to go through their order rather than a year and a half, two years, sort of look at them as a portal, obviously, you're not guaranteed to come into the order. You know, it was a little bit of a quality control also where you kind of go, uh, does this person even have the perseverance or will to do this? Yeah. Because Matt is will, you know, First, second line role tells this it is all about will. This is also one of the reasons that uh, Taliba is um, quite challenging for a lot of gold on people because once you get into the flight roles, you realize there isn't anything that new about Talima. Um, but if you don't have that ability or the ability to by yourself or the ability to develop that capacity, you know, and it's really by not asking terribly much of people within that order, there's benefits to that. That's where you really 
separate the wheat to chaff. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I actually had to go through the painful experience of of, of waiting a very long time in Portal uh, before I was invited into the inner order. Um, it was it was uh, I think a year and a half I was held, which is quite long, as you you'll probably probably agree, because um, it's minimum nine months, of course. Um, mm-hmm. That's a secret I don't mind sharing. I think everyone yeah. knows that. But for me, it was like, and it was partly because of my age. I finished philosophers only in my senior year of high school and took my portal initiation, flew down during Easter break from Waldorf down to L.A. to do my portal initiation with Edward Reeb, actually, who does the Esoteri Nerd podcast, and everyone knows him, and, and Jana as well. She, and one other person, we went through the portal. And then, yeah, a year and a half, they held me in that grade. So I did a lot of things in that year. I eventually got to the point where I was quite sure that I was not going to be invited into the inner order and started trying to think of what I would do with my life. Um, and that was a healthy experience, you know, not knowing. And it, it pushed me through various stages of alchemy and transformation, as I'm sure you can imagine, into very contemplative uh stages like it took me from that very fiery philosophus uh, i can do anything state you know to (laughs) forcing me to go through a very arid dark night kind of experience where it's like why am i really doing this work am i really doing this work for the right reasons um am i here to just get what i can get out of out of the people and the place or am i here to give all that i can give and and that sort of waiting period really changed me in a fundamental way as a person. Like, it's hard to say that a year and a half of just not knowing whether or not you're going to get to do what you want to do um, is going to change you that much. But it really does, especially when there's a fire under you, right? A spiritual fire that uh, causes conflict. It's like an internal conflict. Like, you, you feel called to go to, through this veil, essentially, but you're not the veil's not being opened. So what do you do? Well, you have to figure it out. You have to, you have to keep doing the work for the right reason because you all of a sudden realize you might sit there for years. You might never even go through. And uh, that changes us. That's, that's the real alchemy, I think. I had to watch other people who, who went into Portal I after. Is- I had to sit. You, know, you can imagine how it is when you're, you've been in Portal for so long and you're a leader of your temple. And then you watch other people who went into portal after you on the throne of the Hierophant. That's going to challenge your, your id, your, your, little, your little baby self, the, the lower ego. It's going to be like, what the fuck is this noise, right? There's that part of all of us. Um, I, I was always happy for people. I've always had no problem being happy for other people and what they achieve or where they go or their, their stuff. That's never been a struggle for me, fortunately. But I know for some people, it just ripped them up inside and they just, they just would quit, right? Like, oh, how can someone who... You, you do encounter those egos, right? I, I, I remember when I was in Zelator, some Theoricus made me cry because, <laughs> you know, I was in a bookstore in L.A. and I found this really beautiful copy of The Lesser Key of Solomon and I was going to buy it. It's like this beautiful hundred-year-old copy and, and this Theoricus comes up to me as a Zelator and he's like, you shouldn't be allowed to even buy that because I'm going to get there long before you ever will. And like he was really mean and tried to take the book out of my hands. I was like, started crying because I was like 16 years old, right? 
<laughs> afterwards. I was like, this guy, I thought this guy was my brother and he was so mean. And, uh, it was, uh, my buddy, Jeff Ratterchell came along. He's like, Hey, don't worry about it, man. Like, you know, you're meant to be here. Someone with that kind of mentality, they're the ones who are going to not make it. Don't, don't sweat it. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, of course, that guy didn't last very long at all. I mean, if you have that kind of ego, it's going to kick your ass in this work. I mean, this is what this middle pillar experience of this uh, part of Samaic intersected by pay is. It is really this encounter with the doppelganger or the dollar on the threshold. Uh-huh. This sort of fearful face to encounter either sort of persevere or you really uh, but from another perspective the whole outer order is encounter with that on the threshold the the outer order is still darkness with the dawn of the light but it's not uh the light of the inner order and all of that color this prismatic element that you find in the order it's uh, really a place that is meant to test your metal and to um yeah, I suppose confront you a little. Well, you were saying you were saying that again before about uh, when you put too much work in the outer order, it fails to be a, a catch for those who um, it's a, it fails to be a, the test that it could be prior to people going into the inner order and adepthood. Yeah, because you don't want a debt that can't even bother to stick with for a year and a half and do the work without missy fits because they don't get to do the real magic. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. We need a certain element of quality. Yeah, you, it's, it, I, a lot of people have a hard time even, like I, when, I, when I work with people, I make them sit around generally for a year before I really take them seriously. If someone sits in my vicinity, you know, quote unquote vicinity for a year, still knocking after a year, like, okay, okay, I'm going to fully let you open the door and let you in. But a lot of people can't handle that, right? They, they ask a question or they, they want this or that and they want it. If you don't give it to them right away, they're like, oh, this person doesn't know what, what's, what they're doing. And the, the people don't realize that that's a very old magical tradition to do that, right? But the Golden Dawn itself is an entire extension of that system. It's an entire five elements and ceremonies and memorization test to see if the inner mysteries are something that you can handle and are going to stick with. Because what's the point in teaching someone all of these advanced and very powerful techniques, really, um, if, if they're not going to value them and treat them with respect? Really, the longevity should be in the second order that you have people and even people of prominence that reach the second order and then spin out that are uh, finishing the curriculum in their, um, you know, originating order because they've sort of, yeah, melted a little bit once they reached it. Um, there, there is a certain, that, that should be like the 20-year segment of one's work. Rather than sitting 10 years in outer order, 
you go through the order, you prove you can persevere, then you spend the time really doing practical work, what I would call lab work. And uh, yeah, experimenting, expanding to tradition in an organic way, that's a very, very long-term work that uh, you can't really... You can't really see from outside, and yes, you'll be anxious to get there, but, you know, if people are spending five, six, seven years in an outer order, they've already burned out by the time they get to the inner order, and uh, yeah, then, then that experiment doesn't really happen. There's that itchy-footedness or a sense of also indignance or whatever, even if you put some stuff into the upper order, there won't really be meat and potatoes, you know? No. Yeah. We tried to put as much meat and potatoes in our order, outer order as we could. Um, I would say, um, but some orders really do want to hold people, uh, through, uh, in the outer order for, for seven, seven, eight years. You're right. Or even 10 years. I've heard people say, and I, I do think that is far too long. I think, uh, I think like, you know, seven years is what you go through to be a, a Jesuit or trained in any religious order. And I think if you haven't gotten, you should have the seven years is a good amount of time. <laughs> of course, that's what my experience was to, to go through all the, all the material, uh, the main, the main corpus of the work that you do from neophyte through the grades of five, six, um, and then, and then you, you know, you should be, should have done higher fan term at least once during that time, sat on the dais as an officer, ideally at some point and experienced those currents. But, uh, yeah, the outer order, uh, you know, a few, a few, uh, what is it? Like you can really, even if you pack it, even if you pack it, which ours, our order was packed you can still get through the grades in, in three months or like four, 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 five, six, seven months for philosophist nine for portal. And then, you know, practice. I think we had mandatory of three months for practice, but you could go through neophyte in a month, zealotor in, in a few months, theoricus in a few months. If you did a lot of work, I mean, the tests were rigorous. Uh, the tests were four hour long test and then temple work and stuff. And partly it depended on who was testing you, of course. What's uh, what was your experience, yeah, sort of like? Be different. Yeah, and what are you allowed to divulge to people what See, order or what group you're in? I'm now working towards some other people raising a another Goldon temple in Ireland. I choose not to speak about which order I work Obviously, I speak about one of the historical orders that I work with in the Golden Dawn tradition because it is um, now closed or whatever. But I think some of it's political. There, there are people that really are, I don't know, that, that, that some people like some people and don't like some people and like you or don't like you based on who you're affiliated with. And I think you just need to get on with work. Like I have a absolute aversion to politics of the matter. And uh, so I, I generally stand back from that and uh, yeah, just 
you know, do the work and continue to do the work, working towards more activity in Ireland at the moment, that we revived that. Some people were previously involved with the work, some that are newcomers to the system, uh, but it's work in the end and the order will be different. That's all right. Every temple even will be different and that's all right. But uh, I don't think there's merit in saying I work with or I don't work with this group or I don't play this group or I love this group or, you know, there, there, there's so much baggage comes with that and so wasted energy. I think, you know, all that we can do is best and for that reason I always chosen to avoid speaking about well, I'm in this organization now, and this organization is so much better than that organization, and uh, no, no time. No, that, the, the thing that I think a lot, a lot of people to this day don't realize, um, unless you've been in a very, in a properly active uh, group or temple or order or whatever, um, if you're really doing the work, you don't have time for really any of those shenanigans because you're just too damn busy. Hey, you don't have time for drama. Hmm? But sometimes people bring drama to your life. So I choose, you know, doing the work. I'm a go-on initiate as far as it goes. I refuse to discuss grades. I refuse to discuss orders. I refuse to, um, like my, my emphasis is, as I'd say that much, and my emphasis is really on Golden Dawn and AO as a SM. That's not necessarily judgment. That's where I've come from. I feel comfortable. Yeah, I think I think I think uh, my my group order was such a hybrid of AO and SM that it's uh, I've never had a clear picture of what the real distinctions are between the two, um, and I'm very familiar with you know the Fade Ra style approach. Um, and the, but also the depth of knowledge and work that they've produced, which is valuable to all of us. I mean, I, I, I've heard that there are some groups out there that claim they're the most traditional or the proper traditional or, or pre 1900 or, or, or whatever. But I, even the, some of the ones I've looked into that have said that I've noticed elements of, of hybridization and syncretism with, with other periods of the tradition. Do you, are there any orders out there right now that you think are are purely uh, a pre nineteen hundred version? Absolutely not. And I think that one is fooling himself and one says that. However, I do think that there are more and less academic approaches. That there are some groups that are really going back to original papers and. Uh, yeah, source material, comparing stuff. And that was quite beneficial to have been the ancient honorable of the Golden Dawn from that perspective because there was real differentiation. You know, if you got a paper from the SM, it would say on the front, you know, what year it's from, what it's from, who wrote it. And it would just very clear what was being transmitted to and where it was coming from. And yeah, it was. Um, it was at least clean because it wasn't pretending to be purist, but it was consequent in terms of what it was presenting. You know, if you pick up a Gardi book, particularly the complete system of Golden Dawn or so, you have Bits Rosie Cross stuff in there, you have a bit of SM, you have a bit of AO, you have papers with bits cut off, 
And, you know, that's all you have to work with that is fine and you can make some of that, but it's, um, there, there's something to be said for working towards a more academic approach in terms of um, getting resources, but also not stopping there. So asking what's organic development of this? What could I contribute to that tradition possibly or elaborate from my understanding of that without, um, yeah, just adding random stuff that has nothing to do with it, like, I don't know, Alice Bailey, a temple kind of work, or, uh, yeah, sort of yeah. Michael Harner, or neo shamanism, or, or. I almost started working with Pat Zaleski at one point, but then I was told to read, I was assigned to read this Alice Bailey book, and I started reading it, and then I got to a chapter called The Jewish Problem, and I said no, and <laughs> walked away from that whole deal. Yeah, yeah, but I think, you know, anti-Semitism in the gold one is just uh, irreconcilable. Um, you think it's deeply embedded? I don't. I don't know if it's deeply embedded. I think it's something that came through more in the theosophy than in Gomdon. Not no, no, quite the opposite. But it's 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 not reconcilable. It's not compatible because you can study the Kabbalah uh, and then turn around and have a problem with you did. Oh, I see. Sorry, I mis I misunderstood what you were saying, brother. I misunderstood you. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, right. How can you how can you think how can you comment on the Jewish problem and study Kabbalah and vibrate divine Hebrew names? That it's a, it's that's crazy talk. Yeah, yeah. But like cognitive dissonance is everywhere. And uh I, I think it Really? I look around yeah, in the world today and I don't see any cognit cognitive dissidents in the world at all today. Not at all. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making jokes. Um, hey, hey, uh, brother, let me stop the recording here for a second. Um, and we're recording now. Yay. Oh, my God. I can't believe how heavy the snow is outside. I do not have clothes for this weather, my friend. I need to go to uh, get into Vancouver and buy some clothes. <laughs> I'm freezing. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So back, where were we? How far outside of the city are you? Like five hours in the mountains north. Ouch. Yeah. it's And that's like a, I think it's like a 12-hour bus journey through multiple cities that begins by going the opposite direction for a couple hours. <laughs> Yeah, this is full on. Stop up. It's Abermelon style up here, brother. So, where were we? Hmm? Where were we? Yeah, I know. I it, it, Both times we've had to do this, it sort of thrown off the flow, hasn't it? That's uh, unfortunate. It's it's tricky talking about magical things, but when you feel like you're sort of inside the alembic with someone, uh, it's amazing what kind of things can come out and uh, insights and commonalities get shared. I really do feel that we're in a transformational time in the world for people who are drawn to our form of spirituality. Oh, certainly, yes, yes. It's uh, 
like there's never been a better time to be an occultist, I suppose, but in a way it's also more difficult. There's so much information out there and so many things that you can know about and so many things to be distracted about, not even to mention evils like Netflix and the internet. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's almost harder in a way. Uh, I guess. To me, I think it makes uh, things like orders more relevant and magical schools and mystery schools and, and our role as teachers more important than ever because that was one of the things that I even I found I was overwhelmed with the plethora of information in the early 90s. I didn't know how to approach it or where to begin. Don Craig's Modern Magic was was a breakthrough book because it really tried to show someone a systematic path for sort of empirical training as a magician but of course there's lots of holes and he rushes many things and doesn't emphasize that certain things really need to be memorized or practiced as much as they should be um and so today what we can offer in in temples and orders and mystery schools is is helping people cut through that noise more than ever i mean when you have more noise you need you need tools to 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 mute it more than ever and to, to cut through all the, all the BS and get down to the actual practice and techniques. Cause when you, when you break it down to its core, what we do is not all that vast. It's not that hard to get your head around, but learning it in a way that makes you competent to do it. Well, that is what I feel is at risk is, is what's up for grabs. Yeah, sir. In our time, it's also, because we are so bombarded, you have this, uh, what Rudolf Steiner speaks about as a crossing the threshold, this awareness of the spiritual world, but people are being pushed over that threshold um, in a way that isn't conscious and willful. So there is an increase in mental illness, an increase in nervousness, in anxiety, to really be self-sufficient and willful and yeah to to stand within one's own power that is one of the the great tasks of our time i think there is something in the mystery schools or within mystery traditions that can really address that to some degree yeah but it's really working uh, against the predominant social paradigm of our time so it is something that's also wrecked with challenge. Yeah. But it's worth it, right? It's worth it for those listening. It is. And it's a question of uh, consciousness and will versus sort of, yeah, I suppose subliminal messaging. You have to remember that, uh, what's his name, Freud's nephew, uh, Burbant, was it? that invented basically modern advertising, the use of subliminal messaging and color and so on in the advertising industry. Um, and you counter that what was also happening at around the same time, turn of 20th century with uh, the Golden Dawn and its work with color, same with anthroposophy and its work with color. Um, and, uh, yeah, how do you step across that threshold? Do you do it sort of consciously and in a 
condition consequent way or are you being manipulated by forces that want you to um to to act on your subconscious or upon your will forces but in a way that you no longer have control over and i think this, this question of willfulness is a really earning question of our time. yeah i i fully agree um, if there's a time for us to uh, learn how to alchemize the dross of who we are and cut through to unveil our true selves and let those voices speak, now is now is the moment in in our age to speak something things that are true, truth to madness, truth to stupid, truth to power, truth to ignorance, all of those things. Uh, it's a good time for magic, I think, which is a weird thing to say in this post-religious age of science and uh, consumerism. Well, there's what is factual and what is true. The world as it exists is factual, but what is true is the human being's creative potential and power. And I think that there is... You know, they're not uh, factual, but there is probably nothing more true than these archetypal stories. And uh, there's an important differentiation to be made there between, um, you know, spiritual truth and what is factual. What is factual doesn't actually give you anything other than information. What is true gives you something as a human being to work with. Human beings are creatures of narrative. We are stories. We are creative beings. And, uh, yeah, we really need to differentiate between those two things because we can either be victims in circumstances and go, well, that's just a fact of the world and it is the way it is, or we can strive towards what is true. paradigms creating... and upholding stories can live. Yeah, sorry again for the connection. Uh, I Hopefully the recording, I found that with Zoom, the recording is often better than the live audio. So hopefully, it, though my last podcast, it didn't save the recordings at all. Uh, for two hours of talking, it, it didn't save it, which really choked me given, um, I think it's spending like $100 a month on Zoom. But um, the recording should be better than our live, and and you said so we might be doing this in another cup. Oh, I hope not. Well, me and me and Eric or Arnamancy, who's a great guy, had a great conversation, and then it was just it did it saved only seven minutes of it. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, um, you know. And so that's life, though. What can you do? Can I ask you what would you say is your favorite initiation um, of the from neophyte to portal? What would you say is your favorite one? Neophyte, because it is the seed holds everything else. It has everything in it. It has, um, yeah, it, 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 it's the one that replants the seed, and yes, it grows after that. But it is this first life that really, yeah, thing, isn't it? 
Oh, damn. I'm sorry. I was getting the worst possible reception on you there, brother. Uh, I missed what you said. The reception was really horrible. You mind just repeating that for me, brother? I'd say he's definitely the need to fight for. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Definitely the fight for because it has everything in it. It is really the seed in the earth. It is planted. It is, uh, you know, the tree grows from the seed. And yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. I think it was William Ernest Butler that said, uh, initiation needs to begin, that's all that it means. We are in a constant state of beginning. Uh, I think the neophyte ritual really has... And, no, continue. No, I, I think that's about the extent of it. I think... Uh, Everything that follows in the entire outer or is there and see form and the neophyte Yeah, it's a very powerful formula. Do you have a favorite uh, ritual? A favorite ritual? Favorite ritual? At the moment, I do the lesser ritual pentagram daily, obviously. Um, that's just my, you know, the. Oh, I lost you there. You're invoking in the encounters, banishing at night to just let me sleep. Um, oh, okay. A lot of people don't realize actually describe the vanishing or the ritual, the pentagram gives the invoking form, and then as a script, it gives the vanishing form, and then gives this suggestion of doing the invoking in the morning. morning and the banishing in the evening ought to be said for leading with the invoking form and using the banishing form in the evening in terms of history but also in terms of the purpose of the invoking form that actually it's your day-to-day -day material but you know it's almost like in the AA this um like both of the uh template Destiny that, uh, yeah, so there's something to be said for really invoking and walking through the world in a lit up, energized way, and then also shut that down in the same way. Yeah, no, I, I definitely know what you mean. Um, unfortunately, our connection's gotten worse than ever, and, and I'll hear silence, and then I'll hear all your words said really fast in my ear. Hopefully, the recording's better for people. I mean, either way, it's been a treat to get to talk to you. Um, I, on, the, on your point, though, on the, the banishing and invoking, I think that's, that's... Do you think, though, that it's more important to do uh, an LBR, your, you know, pentagram rituals in a day than, than say, the middle pillar exercise? No, but my day-to-days are really that lighting up and turning down. Then I do quite a bit of devotional work at the moment. So plant the altars and, uh, yeah, things in that direction. I will also work with the plant days, for example. And um, yeah, I've been working with material from the Arbol also. 
of late. Um, I think, I suppose I, I've just become a little bit more, I don't know, things have turned down for me for a little while. I don't do everything every day. Uh, the middle pillar has not really been something that has been a huge part of what I do, to be honest. You know, it's a full in a lot of uh, DRS influence, but um, yeah, like I do it every now and then, but it's not central to what I do, to be honest. Yeah, you know, so uh, the, you're, but you're not one of the uh, those adepts that have swapped uh, the the LBRP for doing the SIRH in the morning and the SBRP at night, have you? I know some adepts are doing it that way now, or have always done it that way. Like moved, done, gone from the lesser to the supreme. Hmm? About your day to day, like things have different contexts, and in your day to day, you're not going to get. Yeah, that's 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 sort of what I've I've always thought. Though uh, I've heard the arguments for why adepts should switch to the supremes, but yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Uh, I haven't experimented with doing supremes invoking and vanishing every morning and night i think that would it feels like it might be overkill i sort of feel like uh the extra protection and extra light needed for people like us is covered by the rose cross ritual and analysis of the keyword um but you know uh i'm sure i'll experiment with doing a supreme every morning and and evening at some point and and note note the benefits or differences it's a it's a lot because i i feel like i don't like to do enochian without tablets how do you feel about the idea of doing any enochian work without tablets present well like tablets it's a very golden dawn thing of course a golden dawn tradition but like you grand table and you have quadrants but you have uh like air water or tablets around a room you have uh, the Nokian workings like the Heptarchy and so that really have nothing to do with the tablets. I think it's relative. But um, like one of the things that I created because I like proper template, I like you know, table of practice and signs of creation and so on. One of the things that I created that's actually up on Gamecrafter is a Nokian magic temple i think called it so a games board goes out to give you a deal of practice and the ensigns of the creation and the watchtowers and on the back of the watchtower are uh, tarot aces so you can turn around when you're not using them and uh yeah i, I think something to be said for doing proper temples for a nokia and i think yeah, you're going to have to send me a link to that. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, um, well, we... Yeah, I, I, if one's clever, same as with the Golden Temple, if one's clever, one can do... <laughs> these things. The, the advice from the Irish adept is uh, be clever. Can we reduce it to that? <laughs> Be clever. Be clever. I like that. <laughs> and um, a bit tricky and what it don't work hard, work smart. I don't know if that's true. I'm a I'm a more of a hard work uh, fan myself. 
but maybe it's true. Maybe working smart is, is, uh, you know, better. I don't Uh, know. Yeah. Sometimes hard work is required. Sometimes smart work is required. And I think people can look at some tasks and go, oh, it's too hard. But if you put some time into thinking, how can I solve this? You would realize it's not universally true that working smarter rather than working harder is uh, of benefit. Um, yeah, I think there is definitely something to be said for uh, just stepping back from something, looking for it, at it for a while, doing a bit of research. Letting any sink into your drinks and see what comes up. Yeah, no, very interesting. Make some hmm. of the solutions come up when you go back. Yeah, you know, brother, I would I, if if I wasn't sitting in a blizzard up a mountain, I would draw this conversation out as long as I possibly could because I'm enjoying talking to you so much. Given the uh, rapid degradation of the of the reception, I think we should probably draw to a close. Yes, probably so. The wind's also starting to blow here, so yeah, the wind also knock out my. <laughs> so we go. We got Canadian mountain internet with Irish Irish gale winds and and de- buckets of rain internet. Tagaman, Nachwil. Yeah, I didn't even hear your response there. So I guess we we should we need to wrap this up, brother. But this has been a wonderful treat. And next time, let's dive into discussing maybe some of the uh, ins and outs of uh, advanced and inner order ritual work. I would love to, since we have some very similar perspectives and experiences, that would be really fun to get into some more nitty gritty details of that sort of stuff. Either that or do some of the clicky Irish stuff. Oh, I'm always up for talking about the Irish stuff, brother. Yeah, you know, um, I'd love to. I'd love to share with you some of the details of the developments of the first of Yeats's initiations. It's it's going quite well, but it's an alchemical process of transformation in itself. Just working those initiations with all the other information available in, in a way that I believe he would have done. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it everything because you know we have relatively the same training, and uh, I'm I'm trying to do it the way I think Yates would have done it, with the added resources that we have available today. Like we have so much more resources on everything from Irish OM to just the history of the gods and the mythology that scholarship has developed since Ireland became a republic in, in Yeats's own lifetime. I mean, in many ways, his Irish mysteries were designed to create a, a physical change in the reality of the world, and in many ways they did. I mean, we saw the Celtic tiger, which Yeats probably would have, if Yeats had been alive for the Celtic tiger, right, the economic boom in the 90s that went on till what, 2008? 2009, I think Yates would have been like, wow, it worked. Just the idea of what I, just his idea of the Celtic twilight and the, the green work worked. He, he, it was a ritual he was doing from the beginning. And certainly the revolutionary and nationalistic side of reviving Irish culture and making it probably the most popular culture in the world, arguably. I mean, from Enya onward. I mean, uh, 
Irish music, Celtic music in the 90s and the economic boom. It, it was overwhelming. It's all anyone talked about, it seemed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, we can get into the Irish stuff more next time. Yes. I want to yeah, hear next time. Next I time. Have to run on to next thing also. Yeah, very good. Good meal, Maha. Good talking to you, brother. Ta, yeah, ta. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do Salas a. And... Slan Las, yeah. Iowa, Iowa, Mohara, Togsos, Togaboge. Iowai. All right, we'll talk soon, brother. <laughs> Light and extension. Preston. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk